0: Michael, you like to read, right? That is true. I do like to read. I have a stack of books uh, on my bed that's like this big, but it's really like this big.
1: I'm sometimes better at having a stack of books that I want to read than actually getting them all read. But that, um,
0: I think that personal libraries are, are kind of wish list. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and hopefully one day you read most of them.
1: That's like an American tradition, right? Because like Thomas Jefferson, there's no way he actually read all the books that he donated to the Library of Congress. Surely he just had some of those for because they look like cool they, books, he right? Like, he liked the binding. Yeah, he planned. He planned to get to them eventually. So, but okay, where I was going with this is that reading can be such an important of kind of our professional growth, right? Um, and you kind of got that started for some social studies educators recently. You want to talk? Tell us a little bit about what you did.
0: This January, we actually had Kenneth C. Davis, who's the author of "Don't Know Much About History." He had written a book called In the Shadow of Liberty, which was looking at five enslaved workers of U.S. presidents. And we wanted to do a discussion about that. So we had a virtual book club where every week we would have questions that people would answer and you know discuss together. And at the end of the week or at the end of that session, we also had videos. So every week there's a video of Jessica Ellison. Uh, Jessica Ellison was one of our partners for this she works at the uh, Minnesota Historical Society, and her and Kenneth Davis would talk about that particular section, and so it was really neat. So we have like all these videos on our Facebook group or our Facebook uh, club, and then throughout the week, it wasn't just us reading the books; we're also talking about how to use it in the classroom. So there was a lot of like uh, organizations, like the George Washington Library, which would you know give us some resources. Uh, Monticello did, Montpelier did. Uh, The Hermitage did. And so it was really neat to kind of like bring all these resources from the presidential libraries, from the presidential homes to our readers.
1: Yeah, it's really neat. And as a social studies teacher, I kind of, looking back, wish that I'd been able to read more with my students. Um, I had them read 1984 in the summer before government. So they'd read that book and then we'd integrate into the class. But I don't really know if I know how to like do a book club. like, And we're just figuring this out, but I'm not sure if I know how to like organize one.
0: Yeah, it. I spent a lot of time researching on, like, how to, like, come up with questions and and how to, like, how to run book clubs. I also then, with my freshman, my own freshman, we were reading Assassination Vacation, which is a book from Sarah Vowell. And she goes and she travels around the U.S. looking at, like, everything that has to do with the Lincoln Assassination, Garfield, and McKinley. Uh, And so it's really fun just, like, I don't know, like, setting time aside to just read and discuss. Mm -hmm. Um, I like it.
1: So maybe we, we can find somebody who can even be more of an expert than us. And so we brought in a guest today who's not only an expert on how to get kids reading and think about that, but just everything in general. She's going to tell us all all of the uh, ways to make education work, right? And so we'd like to welcome into the podcast today, Pernille. right?
2: Thank you. Uh, I'm about to disappoint you greatly. <laughs>
1: <So>. <laughs> Pernille, can you tell us a little bit about your background in education and, and some of the things you've been up to?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I am in my ninth year as a teacher uh, in the American public school system. I was born and raised in Denmark. If you had told me 20 years ago that I'd be sitting in a seventh grade English classroom in Oregon, Wisconsin, I would have laughed in your face. But
0: I have questions about that at, at one point. Yeah,
2: sure. Um, I've been teaching for nine years. In the last three, I've been in the seventh grade classroom. And after about two years of teaching as a fourth grade teacher, I realized I needed to quit as a teacher. Um, I was crushing the dreams of nine-year-olds every single day in my classroom. And I was doing school just fine, just like everybody else kind of goes through the motions after college and doing homework and and grades and punishment and rewards. We had lots of rewards, stickers and pizza parties and all sorts of things. And I realized after two years that this wasn't really what I had intended to do when I started out teaching and that the only thing I knew how to do was uh, to walk completely away from it. That lasted about an afternoon until I got home and my husband looked at me and was like, "Um, no, you can't actually quit teaching. And what happened to these big dreams about changing the world? And he said something that really stuck with me. He's a keeper. And he, he said, you know, you can't change the kids, but you can change the way you teach. And that was truly my big aha moment of going, oh my gosh, nobody is telling me to punish these children this way, or nobody's saying you should reward children when X, Y, and Z happens, or you should um, center everything around grades. And so that summer I did a lot of soul searching and I was like, there's gotta be a better way. And uh, I had just joined Twitter and was totally in love and infatuated with this social medium and all of these connections that I kind of saw happening around the world. And uh, we loved NPR. So we were driving in the car that summer. It was a summer of a lot of changes. And I heard them say Neil Gaiman. And I love Neil Gaiman. And so we turned it up. And they were talking about how on Twitter in the summer of 2010, there was this one book, one world um, book club happening. And they were reading Neil Gaiman, All-American Gods. And so the legend goes, I turned to my husband. I said, wow, somebody should do that for kids. And he said, well, why don't you? He says this never happened. This actually (laughs) is something that I've just fabricated. But that was how the Global Read Aloud started. And the Global Read Aloud has been a cornerstone of my educational belief. So the Global Read Aloud is a book club, just like you guys were just talking about. And that's truly how it started I wanted a better experience for my own students um, to build their kindness and empathy skills and levels. And I wanted them to realize that even if someone was sitting on the opposite side of the world through a book, they could have a a shared experience and also for them to start noticing each other's similarities rather than differences. And so that's really been a cornerstone of my, my big idea and my educational philosophy. How can we connect kids? not just with the world, and we can do that through reading and writing and technology, but also how can we connect them back into our schools? We have an engagement problems in our schools. Uh, The older kids get, the less they like school, the more it's punishment or seen as something just to get through. And so for the past seven years, I've really just been focused on how can I re-engage kids with school? What can we do with all the amazing technology we have? And how can we make small changes in our classrooms that will not only empower the kids we have, but also empower the teachers um, and make us feel like what we're doing is, is worthwhile and, and worth it with the kids?
0: Now, I know we'll get back to this, but I have a specific question about your first language is what? Danish. Okay. Was it difficult making the transition to an English classroom in the U.S.?
2: Uh, no, that sounds terrible. I should be like, yes, it was incredibly hard. No, I was taught English in an inner city classroom in San Francisco when I was six. And uh, my mom was a wandering soul and she had a Fulbright scholarship. So from the age of six, I was taught English. And then my mom ended up marrying an American in 88. So when I was eight. And so we spoke English at my house in Denmark when we moved back. I think what was hard was realizing that I wanted to be a teacher because I had never wanted to be a teacher. You know, some people have this dream since they're three and they're like setting up their teddy bears and teaching them. I in fact told my mother on many occasions, she's a teacher that that was the last thing I was going to do in my life. And I certainly didn't have a vision of being in America either, but sometimes you meet a boy and that boy introduces you to a much better boy. And so then you end up marrying that guy. (laughs) And, um, So I think more coming to terms with the fact that I all of a sudden wanted to be a teacher, um, that was a big, big change. The students now think it's funny that English is not my first language. And my husband always uh, tells people that here's my Danish speaking wife who actually um, speaks English better than I do. And uh, the kids get a kick out of it. My own children, I have four children of my own. My oldest one day looked at me and she goes, mom, what do you teach again? And I said, English. And she goes, why you never speak it (laughs) because I only speak Danish at home. So I think the American public school system has been a lot to, uh, to take in. And especially the changes, even in the last 10 years that we've gone through have been, um, really massive as far as just the creativity and how, how we're treating kids. So it's been a challenge, but a good one.
0: For the record, I, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a space pirate.
2: See? I mean, <laughs> and, you should still do that. It's I'm, possible.
0: I'm waiting. Who knows? I, I mean, here <laughs> they are sending a a, man, a civilian man ship to uh, the moon. So maybe right. I'll take it over.
1: Berniel, there's some of Michael's ideas we should indulge and others we should try to tell him to keep his current teaching job <laughs> and not pursue a non-existent profession. Um, I really appreciate how you talk about your your own story and your own satisfaction with teaching because I think so often we put so much focus on the kids. And of course, rightly, right? That's what we're there for. But if we don't have like some kind of inner satisfaction with the work we're doing, it's too draining of a job to continue. And I've always, I don't, I don't know if either of you have ever read Parker Palmer's The Courage to Teach, but um, it's a fantastic book that really gets at how the relational aspects of teaching and how it has to be a satisfying profession for us too and um so i really uh, uh, appreciate the way you look at that and i would think even reading books together can be something that is satisfying for everyone i mean um, no matter what the level of book is the stories can can be kind of something that brings us together so can you tell us a little bit about how you actually like constructed the experience or, or situated the experience so so people could read together if they are in different places do you do Partially, is it like a local reading group who connects with others or is it all done with people from all over? How do you how do you structure the experiences?
2: Well, the wonderful thing is that I went into the Global Read Aloud completely blind. And I honestly think that that's the best way to tackle big projects, because if I had known what it would be now, seven years later, I would have been too terrified to go into it. So it was one of those things where my brain got ahead of the actual project. And I, and that, that night I I wrote a blog post. I just started blogging and just kind of wrote a, you know, what if we did a global read aloud, let's find a book and read it at the same time and then use some sort of tool to connect. And I hit publish. And I, I remember even saying like, maybe, maybe we should use a wiki because I had just learned about wikis. And now of course, knowing wikis, like that's the worst thing you can use to collaborate with people around the world. Well, there's probably worse, but it's up there. And I hit publish. And, and somebody tweeted it out. And on Twitter, people were like, yeah, that sounds great. Where do we sign up? And I was like, I don't know. Well, I just learned about Google forms. Here's a Google form. Okay, where can we get more information? Well, I'm going to make a blog quick, like it was so organic. And it was kind of a panic organic of where do we get this? Oh, here you go, I'm going to make it. And so that first year, um, it really was just about, okay, we need it, we need a we need a book. We need to all read the same book. We can't read ahead because we can't give spoilers. But I asked the community and there was about 30 teachers that signed up that first year. And I said, do we want to create lesson plans? Like, do we want lesson plans to go along with this reading? And it was The, the Little Prince, which is one of my favorite books. And they said, no, we don't, because we're all different. We're all working under different standards. We all have different technology or not even have any technology. What we just need is this very basic framework and then say, okay, here's the four weeks that it's happening. Here's the book. Here's when you should read. And here's ways you can connect. And so that really, for me, has stayed the same for the global read-aloud. So that first year, we had about 300 kids that connected. We did use the blog. We did use the wiki. It was a it was a pain. We phased it out after two years. But I remember reading The Little Prince Aloud in my fourth grade classroom and then showing pictures that other kids in other countries had drawn. And they were just astounded at how similar their drawings were. Like, that was the big thing. Like, well, that I kind of drew that. Like, look at how they interpreted the book. And um, so after that first year, it was just really successful. I was like, OK, well, that was fun. And then right away, people are like, when are we doing it again? And I thought to myself, what do you mean? Um, we've done it. <laughs> we tried it. It was a su- success. Like, I'm good. And they said, well, let's do it again next year. And I said, oh, all right. And so that next year, people said, well, can we pick two books? Because The Little Prince was kind of hard. It was, it was too easy for some and too hard for some. And so that second year, we picked uh, two books instead. I think we did Flat Stanley, the chapter book, and we did Tuck Everlasting so that there was a bigger span. But the framework ended up staying the same. Here's the books, here's the chapter list of when to read, here's the tools you could use if you want to, and here's when we're reading it. And so the global read aloud has really organically grown since then. And I think the power of that growth lies within the framework, that it's not all laid out, because this way, a classroom in Africa can still be a part of it, even if they don't have access to Skype or some other technology, they can use letters or they can use the one teacher computer that they have to send out emails. Because we're all facing different mandates and and schedules, it also helps to not say, here's all the activities you have to do with it. And I think that has been really comforting for a lot of people too, that they can be a part of the global read aloud or any of the collaborative projects that we do simply by reading the book. They don't even have to do anything. And a lot of people come into the project that way the first year they read the book aloud and know that there's this gigantic community um cross collaborating around the world, but they just kinda sit back and watch and then the next year they jump in and they do stuff. So the global read aloud this so in in 2016 hit a million kids wow. for that for that year. I know, right? Like that's crazy. And I think again, I don't think it would have gotten that big if it'd been a lesson plan. I, I think it I think the power truly is that we pick amazing books. And then people who do it come back and they bring 10 of their friends. And then those 10 friends bring 10 more friends and that's how it's grown. And so we it's, it's now connecting, um, you know, a million kids on six different continents. One year we'll get Antarctica. It's going to happen. Those penguins uh, I hear. Uh, I know. They're,
0: they're, they're Eating, good. Right? Yeah, no, they're, <laughs> they're quite adept. So,
2: yeah. So, I mean, so for me, that has always been the spirit behind a lot of my teaching. Here's the idea. Here's what we're going to try. I figured out the big parts. Here's what my kids came up with. Let's try it and see it. And and not so much like let's figure it out as we go, but just maybe in a way, yes, let's just figure it out as we go.
0: What platform are you using now? For what? Oh, so it seems like you have multiple <laughs> platforms. Okay. Uh, what platforms are you using? I know that you, you phased out Wiki after two years.
2: Yeah. And it really became that people didn't need a central place to share. And it was more about like people taking things and and making them a part of the project so for example like we've always used twitter there's always a common hashtag we've used skype a lot or google hangout any of the face-to-face video calling in recent years like people have started taking padlet like a lot of people have used padlet and shared work through there and then invited other classrooms in any kind of blogging platform whatever people have access to weebly has been used a lot facebook we have a like a i don't know 3,000 or 5,000 educator community where they go kind of as a teacher community and say, okay, here's my ideas. Here's what I'm using. Um, one thing that has been incorporated over the years is, so if you were to sign up, you'll get a welcome email from me. And then it says, okay, you can either join the Facebook community and find people to connect with that are reading the same book, or you can go to our Edmodo community. So there's kind of two places where you can choose how do you want to connect with the teachers and figure and find out who you want to connect with. But truly it's been whatever platform you want to use and whichever way you want to use it, Microsoft people use, people use Google, just depends on how you want to do it. A lot of people use mail, which I love postcards, gift exchanges. Um, yeah. Whatever you want to make of it.
1: Singing telegrams. Yeah. I'm down. Smoke, smoke signals. <laughs> so it seems to me, Cornel, that your, your teaching was really transformed by engaging in online spaces, by finding community in online spaces, by finding other people interested in doing the same things. Do you think that engaging on Twitter and in these other online spaces continually transforms your teaching or affects the way you teach and, and go about things?
2: Very much so. And I mean, the reason I turned to Twitter in 2010 was I was surrounded by great colleagues, but I felt really alone. And I think that that's a really common occurrence for many teachers who all of a sudden go, wait, I don't want to teach like this. I want to I want to do something different. And so we have to go find our tribe. Right. So that we can't be the lonely, crazy people on the island. And that's that's often how I felt yes, Twitter and any kind of social media connection still transforms my teaching today. I'm just thinking like yesterday for World Read Aloud Day, I, my, one of my classrooms Skyped with an Islamic charter school in California. And it was a three-way call where we also had the author of a book, a picture book called um, Who is a Muslim? And so for my kids... Because I know Amira, who put on, who sent out a tweet and said, Hey, who wants to connect with us? This is what we're doing. I was able to say, My kids want to be a part of this. We want to connect with this author. And they've now had an experience once again where we're trying to confront the danger of a single story that's happening in our society. And so that has been a big theme for this year. And I think of, for example, when we look at like the travel ban that was instituted, being an immigrant myself, I'm not a U.S. citizen, the travel ban really hit close to home. And it hit close to home for a lot of my friends too. And so that weekend when we were kind of figuring out what was going on, I knew that Monday's lesson couldn't be what I had planned. (laughs) You know, it couldn't be whatever it was we were doing at the time, review of something. It had to be awareness. And I know that my job in the classroom is not to indoctrinate my students and tell them what their opinion should be, but my job is to make them aware of the world around them and give them uh, a, a safe place to figure out what their opinion should be. So that weekend I started a Google doc and I sent it out on Twitter and I said, look, I'm crowdsourcing resources to teach kids about the travel ban. And I do need resources from both sides of it. And all weekend, I just kind of went in and checked as this document grew and grew and grew. And it was videos and articles and cartoons and books that people were going in and sharing from both sides. And so Monday, Monday came around and I walked into my kids and I said, I don't know if you followed the news, but there was a big announcement on Friday and it certainly sent parts of our country into chaos. Here's all the resources, or you can use your computer and find some yourself. I want you to be aware. And then I want you to discuss. And I think You know that comes from being connected to other human beings because if I wasn't connected I don't think I would had I had had the courage to throw everything out and say this is more important and then to bring in the tools That others have created and others have shared to say to my students Okay now use these tools made by strangers so that you can become a more aware human being
0: That's one of the things I like about uh, social media is that sometimes teaching you do feel like an island but being able to engage with people in, in virtual places, it's kind of like being a part of an archipelago, right? Kind of like Hawaii. We're connected by each other through like, I don't know, virtual stuff. And we get to hang out in Hawaii. I didn't fully think about how, where this was going, other than the fact that it's good to to connect.
1: You know, and I've done a little bit of research on this. Uh, my my uh, colleague, at, he's at Elon University, Jeff Carpenter and I, we did a study to try to figure out how and why teachers use Twitter. And that was one of the things that they said is that they were isolated in some way, whether it was geographically isolated or intellectually isolated. And so these online spaces, I, I always tell people that I think teacher Twitter is the way that social media should be done. It's incredibly positive. It's incredibly creative and generative and relationship forming. And I mean, Michael and I literally met on SS chat and now we have a podcast and we've written an article together, and we constantly are brainstorming creative things we can do in education. Um, and so it's, it's a whole kind of mindset and approach. And I wish the rest of like Twitter and Facebook were that way, but they don't feel that way oftentimes. So I don't know, right. maybe, our, maybe teachers are the leaders in, in kind of figuring out how we can, can get this social media thing right.
2: I think just you get one convert, right? You get one person that's connected in some way and then they tell their friends and like, I have told many people about Twitter or Facebook or whatever. And, and they've always kind of looked at me like, mm, whatever, that sounds good. I don't know where you find the time. I always hear that. But I think about how much time it saves me to be connected to others. I don't have to sit and create all of my own resources. For example, going back to that crowd resources, like everybody, everybody's chipped in. And so all of a sudden, Um, my job is now easier. But I always tell people, find a way to be connected. I don't care how you're connected. Like if Twitter's your thing, great. Instagram, okay. Facebook, face-to-face, whatever. But find other people because nobody has to be the island, right? Nobody has to be the crazy person. Did you just say Jeff Carpenter too, Dan? Is that how you... I I love Jeff Carpenter. He's amazing. I know, he's He's tall. He's very tall and very (laughs) smart and very intimidating in a good way. But he's the first researcher to do official research on the global read-aloud.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, and that was actually how, you know, and it's just part of his network. I met Jeff on Twitter because I came across one of his students tweets and I knew about the global read aloud from him. And so, um, and so that's, I think at that point, and this was a while ago, I started following you on Twitter, um, which it always helps when you have like 38,000 followers, right? That like gives you a nice, a nice network to reach out to.
2: Yeah, very much.
1: But yeah, so that's how we've worked together on a lot of projects. And, um, that's, I think how I first started following you a couple of years ago and then eventually, I was like, you know, we need to have her on the podcast to share some of her wisdom.
0: It's an educator <laughs> archipelago, archipelago. Right.
1: An educator archipelago. Is am I, I saying mean, so-
0: it right? I want to
1: say it right. I don't think so. I don't think that's how you say it. But I'm excited when, like, in ten years, your book comes out, like, based around this this concept. Right. <laughs> it's right here. This is it. This is the origin story. This is where it starts. Yeah. yeah. Now
2: we can say no, that truly didn't happen, and you made that origin
1: story. <laughs> that's- Uh, Pernille, what can you tell us, what advice can you give teachers about not just getting involved in the Global read Aloud Program, but changing their teaching the way that that your teaching was kind of transformed?
2: I think, hmm, this is a good one. I always tell people, start with one small thing, because I think when you first get connected or when you first start, if you read a really good PD book, right? You're like all fired up. I want to do this. Then you go back to your own reality and you're like, I can't. You run into all of these reasons why you can't be that teacher or you can't do that program or you can't do these things. So what I've learned in my own journey of change is one step at a time. You know, you, you focus on one thing. And when that little tiny thing works Then you take on the next thing. And then you don't compare yourself to others. And I say that, like, sometimes I'm invited out to go speak to teachers. And I'll say, like, please don't compare your journey to mine. I've been doing this craziness for seven years now where I've been really focused on trying to give the classroom back to my kids and doing global collaboration. But if you're just starting, like, don't try to do what I'm doing. Do what makes sense for you. And so for me, my first change was throwing out the seating chart. Like, and that was a huge thing for me. Because seating chart, of course, means this is my carefully constructed classroom management plan. And now everybody is going to access the learning and be amazingly behaved. But it turned out that that one thing of saying to kids, yeah, you can choose where you sit. And for those two kids that can't figure it out, well, we're going to figure something out together. That gave me so much courage to go on and go, Okay, wait, if I can give them power over this, what else can I give them power over that will actually change their attitude towards teaching? So I guess my advice to teachers is find that one thing. And I always say, if you're not sure where to go, go back and ask your students. Like that was the, what I did when we started school again after that summer, why I wanted to quit. I started my first day of school going, How would you like school to be? How could school be better? And that's the question I've been asking my kids for the last seven years How can I be a better teacher for you? Why don't you like reading? Why don't you like writing? Why, when I say we're going to do book clubs, do you all groan and roll your eyes? You know, and their wisdom truly is what has fueled everything I do and every change comes mostly I would say from my students wisdom or honesty or reactions to what we're doing and I think we forget that I think like we're really good at going out and reading PD books and we're really good at going out and listening to speakers and and going man I want to do that we have the best professional development sitting in our own classrooms and they're free and they're stuck with us and the thing is like these kids they want to tell you what we can change and I think like so I don't know. That was like three things that teachers should do, I think, if I go back and think about that.
1: So, it, if we were to make it a metaphor, Michael, it would be like taking the seven continents that exist in your classroom <laughs> and and making them Pangea. Yes. <laughs> Pupil Pangea. What
0: what advice do you have to what advice do you have to motivate students to read? It seems like that's also something that you might have a, some insight in
2: first of all buy picture books uh, picture books at any age because picture books it brings reading back to being fun if, and you guys can see my classroom behind me and there's picture books all behind me second of all allow kids to pick their own books I know that sounds so insane but like the older they get we take that choice away. And then we wonder why kids don't read. So free choice at all times, and then remind kids that it's okay to abandon books. Those are some of the biggest, like life changing things for my kids to actually tell them, no, it's okay. You can abandon a book and no, you don't have to give me a page write up of why you're abandoning a book because there's too many books waiting for you. And so for some of my kids, like, and I still have kids that abandon a book every single day and we are in March. Well, that tells me they don't know who they are as readers at all. And some of them don't even want to know who they are as readers. So that's where we start. So um, I think just reading is supposed to be fun. Reading is supposed to make you want to read more. Reading is supposed to be an adventure. And so if the programs that we're using to teach kids how to read better is harming that love of reading, then we shouldn't be using those programs. And that has been something that I've been really adamant about. And I've been incredibly supported in, in my district. And that's not just me, that's teachers across my district in Oregon, Wisconsin, that they really want us to make reading about becoming a better human being and not just teaching skills. And smart people have said it before me too. You know, what does it matter if we're teaching them reading strategies, if they're never going to use them the minute they leave our classrooms?
0: People think that I've read On the Road. Um, They they think that, and I don't, I let them think it, because for a long time I used to carry around On the Road with me. I I couldn't get into it. I abandoned that book. I've read many other books since then. Maybe one (laughs) day I'll get back into it. But I let people think that I've read On the Road, and I feel like now I, I have freedom to admit that to everyone. I have not finished On the Road. I hear it's good.
2: I I think I abandoned on the road at some point. I I mean, I just had to admit to my kids, no, I've never read Hatchet. And they all looked at me like I was crazy. Like, this is like this tone of the 1980s U.S. children's literature. And I'm like, well, one, I didn't grow up here. And two, ew, nature? No. But they made me read it. And it was amazing. But I think first I had to admit, I've never read it. I've told many children to read it because I've heard it's good. (laughs) Now I know it is.
1: I've read all the books. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but no it's it's such a great point about we should enjoy reading and we should enjoy learning and sometimes in school we find ways to make learning unenjoyable by attaching grades and tests and other things to it when people really do like to learn naturally they just um, we sometimes don't recognize it Our, our visions of learning sometimes in school are not the same as what authentic learning looks like outside school. So, well, I think you've given us a lot to, to think about Perneal and, and thank you so much for joining us today. Can, can you tell us where our listeners can find you and your work online?
2: Sure. I'm really Googleable. I think I'm the only Perneal Rip in all of North America, which is kind of amazing. So if you Google my name, um, Perneal Rip, my blog comes up blogging through the fourth dimension. My books come up. My Twitter handle comes up. My Instagram is where I post only book recommendations. It's the one account where I say to my students, they can actually follow me. And if you're ever in Wisconsin, our classroom is always open, room 235D, Oregon Middle School. So I'm fairly, fairly easy to find. Well, thank
1: you. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much again for joining us. And we'll definitely continue the discussion online and in other spaces.
2: So nice to meet you both. Thank you.
1: Thank you. So at the Visions of Education
0: podcast, we are all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something exciting or creative in in your classroom or in education, go ahead and tweet at us. You can also just tweet at us to say hi. And if you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Education on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you would like.
1: And if you write us a five star review on the air, we will read it and we appreciate it. It helps people find <laughs> this podcast. <laughs>
0: that wasn't it.
1: What was it? What'd I say?
0: If, if you write us a five star review, we'll read it on the air. He said, uh, if you write us a, a five star review on the air, we'll read it. Sorry, for you, I was like. <laughs> but if you do, if you do <laughs> put it in the air, like in sky letters, that'd be great.
1: We will do something with the five-star review that you write. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka.
0: And I'm at 42 People.
1: Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast signing off.
0: Archipelago. Archipelago.